Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. We're looking at verses 9 through 20. Pretty hard-hitting text here, keeping it consistent through the weeks here. We're working our way through the book of Romans, how the gospel changes everything. You guys excited to be here this morning? Outstanding. I love the gospel. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, satisfy our deepest longing like the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel. So we've been saturating ourselves with the gospel message week in and week out. This book just keeps getting better and better. It's going to get better. This week's a little bit, a big, a big hard hit again, but we're going to start really understanding more and more of God's grace. Got to deal with the bad news before we get to the good news. So this weekend, we're talking about why everyone needs the gospel, how the gospel changes everything. In, 19, in the 1970s, there was a book that came out on the New York Times bestsellers list for a couple of years. And it was titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Anybody familiar with the book? Read the book? Yeah. It was an interesting book. Um, in the 80s, I was required to read this book, among other books, in a counseling class that I was taking as I was working to get my, my licensing as a pastor. And the book talked about transactional analysis. Really, there was some good insight in that. But uh, in the 1990s, Wendy Kaminer uh, wrote a book titled, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. <laughs> and it was a devastating critique of the self-help movement, calling it very narcissistic, kind of attacking that book, I'm okay, you're okay. And really saying that it's the cult of victimhood, this whole self-help movement that's going here in America. And Wendy's idea here is that I'm okay, you're okay, that sounds awfully superficial, considering the fact that we live in a world filled with sin and suffering with homicide and genocide and suicide and, and all the un injustice and all the problems we've got, that's a superficial way of looking at things. I'm okay and you're okay? No, this place is a mess. And, and that was kind of her idea. Ten years later, this Wendy Kaminer came out against the hard religious right, and the uh, New York Times subtitled her book, I'm okay and the rest of you are no way okay. And she said that this, is, this kind of moralism 
is what was being promoted. This kind of moralism is what produces elite superior races in the death camps. And she went in and talked a little bit more about that. So, so I'm okay, you're okay is too narcissistic. I think most people would agree. I'm okay, you're not okay is too moralistic. I'm not okay and everyone else is okay. That is too masochistic. So where are we left here? Where are we left? Well, here's what Paul is saying in this text. This is what he's trying to drive home. And he's been doing this for about three chapters now. I'm not okay and you're not okay. That's what he's saying. That's where we are in the text. As you were listening to that text being read, he's just basically saying, you're not okay, I'm not okay. And it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way because we have the gospel. That's the big idea that he's trying to get across. Now, just to make sure we're kind of warming up to that here this morning, I want you to turn to the person next to you, look them in the eyes and say, I'm not okay and you're not okay, but that's okay because we have God's grace. Okay, do that real quick. See if you can do that. Can you remember that? I think I heard a couple of you say, I'm okay, but you're all messed up. <laughs> Anybody say that? Okay, that's, see if my wife was up here, she would have said that to me. I'm okay, I know I'm okay, but you're all messed up, dude. You need a lot of God's grace. So take a look at your sermon notes here, part of the intro. Whether you have lived a life of terrible immorality and debauchery, you fit in that category of being irreligious, the Greek. That's what we studied back a few weeks ago. That was our second message, Romans 1, 18 through 32. So he, he really pounded hard the irreligious. Or you're living a life of tremendous and conscientious morality. That would be the religious, the Jew. That was Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8. We, we spent, he seems to spend a little bit more ink on the religious. That's a harder nut to crack, I think. I think the religious tend to be a little bit more proud than the irreligious. So what he's doing here, he's giving us the full spectrum of people on the planet Earth. And so you might either be irreligious or religious or somewhere in between what he's saying here in our first verse in our text, verse 9, he says, all of us are under sin. And we need to unpack that and understand that, but he's just saying all of us, all of us need the gospel. This does not mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. It means that our legal condition is all the same. Everybody on this planet, our legal condition is all the same. We are all lost, condemned to perish, and there is no degree of lostness. Therefore, this is why everyone needs the gospel. That, that's what he's been talking about. That's what we've been talking about for the last Let's see, one, two, three, four. Yeah, this fourth, this is about the fifth week of this. The whole front end of, the, of, of, the, of Romans is just telling us, hey, we are desperate without Christ. We need him. Now, take a look at your sermon notes here. This is how it's laid out. Why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on ourselves. That's verses 9 through 12. 
And then the effects of sin on our relationships, that's verses 13 through 17. And then the effects of sin on our relationship with God, that's verses 18 through 20. That's where we're headed with our study. But let's first, let's bow our heads, let's pray. Let's once again go before the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us so that we can apply this to our lives. Father God, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Accepting the very bad news of our sin is necessary before we're ready to receive the very good news of your grace. We confess that too often we we don't carry with us a deep appreciation for your grace because we don't carry with us a deep sadness for our sin. You convict us not to shame us, but to show us your grace and to set us free from our sins and to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. So as we mourn our sin most deeply, may we celebrate your grace most joyfully. We pray this in our Savior's beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. So why does everyone need the gospel because of the effects of sin? You'll notice on your notes, I, I put in parentheses three words, unbelief, pride, idolatry. This is the ideology, the set of causes to our sin. When I, was, when I went through paramedic training, went through anatomy, physiology, did some disease pro- profiles, and they have the etiology. You kind of look at the, the causality of, of, of disease, the set of causes of disease. So this is kind of the set of causes of our sin. It goes all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3. So when we, when we turn our back on God, when we rebel against God, it always starts with this, unbelief. I begin to doubt his goodness. I somehow believe that he's holding out on me, and so therefore I'm smarter than him. I go from unbelief to pride. I begin to substitute myself for him. I begin to call the shots for my life rather than letting him call the shots for my life. That's called pride. And then that immediately goes into idolatry idolatry. I begin to love something in creation more than I love God. It, it makes sense when you look at that. So, so it starts with unbelief. I doubt God's goodness. I turn away from the one in whom I should be receiving all the significant security and satisfaction I could ever get from anyone from Him. But if I turn away from that, I doubt His goodness that immediately leaves me empty, vacuum inside. I think I can do it on my own. I'm smarter than God. I'm more loving than God. I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to, you know how all the statements go in our culture today. And immediately that vacuum is filled up with a counterfeit God, a pseudo-savior, because you were created as a worshiper. You will worship something or someone. Something will be at the center of your life. And if it's not the God of the galaxies, the creator of the universe, it will be a counterfeit God, a pseudo-savior. That's the etiology, the set of causes of our sin, our problem with sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how glorious and beautiful He is. We turn our back on Him. We rebel against Him. And that's true about all of us. And so why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on ourselves. This creates a psychological alienation, a death inside of us, also known as an an inconsolable human longing. Well, that makes sense. I was meant to find my contentment, my satisfaction, security, significance in God but I turn away from him, I'm going to have an inconsolable human longing inside of me to try to fill it up with created things as opposed 
to the Creator. This is how Jesus put it. He helped us, helps us understand that in John 6, 27 and 35. He says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So he's making a distinction. We're going to labor for something. We're all working hard for something. We're all driven by something. Something's at the center of our life. Everybody has a Lord to their life, whether you want to call it that or not. There's something or someone you're serving. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Don't try to fill yourself up on created things. Fill yourself up on the Creator is what he's saying here. In fact, verse 35 is a beautiful verse. One of my favorite verses, John 6, 35, because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never go hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. <laughs> I love it. Contentment, satisfaction, security, significance, everything your heart longs for in him. But when we don't do that, we got a mess on our hands. And this is our condition, and this is what he's saying is true about all mankind apart from God. Look at verse 9. All of us are under the penalty and the power of sin. Let me read verse 9. Keep your Bibles open. You can follow along. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we people who have the Bible and go to church and put money in the box and hang out with each other? Are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews, religious, and Greeks, irreligious, are under sin. Once again, running the full spectrum of people on the planet earth. So what he's saying here is that sin is universal. Sin is not a human problem, but the human problem. So we could put it like this. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. Now, let me ask you this question. We'll do a show of hands here. Um, how many would say our people, our people, our all people, is mankind basically good or basically bad? By show of hands, how many would say that you believe that mankind is basically good? Show of hands, show of hands, is basically good? Okay, okay. There's more in this service. There's more in this service, and I appreciate your optimism, okay? And I want to hang out with you. But that's a contradiction to what he's telling us right here, because he's, he's saying that we are all under the penalty and the power of sin. How many would say that we are basically bad, basically bad people? Okay, okay. I don't, I don't want to hang out with you guys, okay? <laughs> I'm joking. You guys would be more in touch with reality. These other folks that think we're basically good, yeah, <laughs> they're going to give me the benefit of the doubt. Praise God. Um, what he's saying here is there, there's, a, there's an interesting song. It's, uh, I'm not a country music guy, but there's a country music artist. His name is Luke Bryan, and he's, he's got a song. It's called Most People Are Good. You guys familiar with this song? Anybody familiar with this song? You guys don't, you're not country people, are you? Okay, there's one person here. Okay. So most people are good. That's heretical. Okay, that's not biblical. Because Romans 3 completely contradicts that song. And if that was true, don't you think that that would turn the tide a bit, that we should be progressing as humans? Shouldn't things be getting better? If, if, if most people are good, it seems that that would outbalance the bad and somehow that would take over. There's another uh, guy came up to me last night and said, there's another uh, 
country music artist. His name is Billy Currington, and he wrote a book, People Are Crazy. I think that one would be more accurate, okay? <laughs> People are crazy. Yeah. And that would be more consistent with what Paul is saying here. And uh, I mean, think about this. There's people that actually believe in evolution. When you think about the evolutionary process, survival of the fittest, we came from monkeys and now we're, we're, we're growing into these very sophisticated human beings. It seems as though by this time we would have it figured out and we would be really, really sophisticated. We'd overcome a lot of our problems and we wouldn't have the mess that we currently have, but it's not working. I, I don't believe in, in evolution, but I believe in devolution. I, I don't believe we came from monkeys, but I think we're headed there. I think that's where we're going. <laughs> I mean, the way things are going, and, and you almost see this kind of downward spin in our culture today, and there's certainly highs and lows, but read history. We are getting worse. I mean, I love, I, I think our country is the, one of the best, I think it's the best country on, on the planet. I love America. I love what we got going on here. And there's a lot that we have that's really positive. But we've had a couple hundred years to work on this, and we're a mess still. There's so much division. I mean, there is such antagonism. I mean, we are spread out in our beliefs and understandings, and we're so divisive towards one another. It's unbelievable. I think there's a possible civil war coming in the future because we're so divided here. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's crazy, and I think it's consistent with what he's saying. All of us are under the penalty and the power of sin. When I hear someone say that people are basically good, I know immediately that they have never had children. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let me ask you this. What's the difference between a child in their terrible twos and a terrorist? <laughs> Size size. I mean, I, I mean this with all respect, but have you ever met a viper in a diaper? How about a midget demon screaming their head off? And they want their way right now. You better give them everything they want. Kids come out of the womb with that sinful nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And if those kids don't get a lot of loving discipline from mom and dad and a whole lot of Jesus, they're self-centered little midget demons. You don't have to teach kids to fight over toys or to bully their siblings or to be defiant toward their parents. They just do that naturally. You're welcome, mom and dad. Yeah. You don't have to teach them to lie, cheat, or steal. That just comes natural. So we are sinners by nature and by choice. We need more than behavior modification we need heart transformation. Only the gospel can give us that. We need heart transformation. That's how bad we are and how deep our need is. Look at verse 10. And all of us are not right with God. So we're under the penalty and the power of sin, and we're not right with God. That just makes sense. So what he's going to do here is he's going to start quoting from Old Testament passages. Most of this is just Old Testament passages, and he's, he's making sure that the Jews, the religious folks, know that he's quoting from their Bible, just to validate that I'm not pulling this out of the sky, I'm not making this up, you just need to know this is Bible, this is what the Bible says about us apart from God, apart from Christ. And so in verses 10 through 12, Paul is quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Let me read verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
None is righteous, no, not one. So what does that mean? So this is what it means. We're not in right relationship with God. I, I don't know if you knew this, but you do need to know this. Sin is not the breaking of some arbitrary rules. It's, sin is relational. It's a, sin is ultimately against God. It is a trampling on his perfect love and infinite wisdom. See, God created us and he knows us. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what will help us to flourish. And in his infinite, his perfect wisdom and infinite, his perfect love and infinite wisdom, he, he has given us his word his guidelines, his commandments, the Ten Commandments, summarized by Jesus, the greatest two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And he gives us these so that we will flourish, so that we can have relationship with him and one another. We will flourish in our life. But when we turn away from that, we're trampling on his love and wisdom. It's a dagger in the heart of God. So our sin makes us not right with God. We're out of relationship with God. So when you think of none is righteous, no, not one, it's, it means we're not in right relationship with him. That's why David, when he prayed his repentant psalm, you find his repentant psalm in Psalm 32 and then also in 51, in Psalm 51, 4, remember what he did? He committed adultery, murdered, betrayed a nation, and then he says this, seems a little odd because he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. What? No, you didn't sin only against God. You sinned against Bathsheba, her husband, the nation. No, no, no. David understood that for him to commit adultery and, to, and murder and betrayal of his nation, he had to trample on the perfect love and infinite, infinite wisdom of God. It was a dagger in the heart of God. By the way, that's true repentance. When you realize that first and foremost, I have to rebel against a holy, righteous God that loves me like no one else, and I'm trampling on his love and wisdom. Against you, you only have I sinned. And that's why David prays later in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He didn't sin and lose the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And, and so all of us are under the penalty and the power of sin. All of us are not right with God, and so it just makes sense. Verse 11, no one wants God. This is sin in the mind and the heart. This is what's true about us who have turned away from God. This is our fallen condition. We're sinners by nature and by choice. This is true about everybody on the planet. So look at verse 11. I'll read it. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The word understands mean, means this. No one understands how desirable and satisfying God is, and therefore we don't seek him. Because if we really understood the living God, we would seek him with all of our heart. That's the idea. That's, that's the implication here. See, if, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, 
if you understood, I mean, and begin to understand that what he thinks about you, how he feels about you, what he wants to do in and through your life, I'm telling you, nothing would keep you from seeking him with all of your heart. You would pursue him. That's, that's what he's saying here, but no one, no one wants God. That's sin in the mind and the heart. To seek God is to have an appetite for God that exceeds all other appetites. Believe me, if the exceeding appetite of your life, the greatest appetite in your life is God, then all your other appetites will fall in their appropriate place. So to seek God is to have an appetite for God that exceeds all other appetites. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God is, is an idol. That's why I like what A.W. Tozer says, to have found God and still pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. I, I can tell when someone has, is walking in vital union and communion with God. They have a relationship with God because not only do they have this satisfaction in God, but they want more of Him. Their heart, their desire for Him is just stirred up. They want more of Him. That's, that's a healthy believer. So all of us are under the penalty and the power of sin. All of us are not right with God. We're out of relationship with God. No one wants God's sin in the mind and the heart. And then no one obeys God. That makes, just, that makes sense. Verse 12, no one obeys God's sin in the will. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. Our life is empty. We all want our lives to count, but if we're going to live our lives for ourselves, we're going to live worthless lives for the most part. No one does good, not even one. Now, that, that's kind of odd. When I read that, I go, what? Nobody does good. What does that mean? I, I think I've done some good. Have, there's people that do good. I know people that aren't believers that seem to do good. What does he mean by that? Well, it tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, all our good deeds are like filthy rags. The, the idea here is that if we think that we can earn a right standing with God, bridge the gap of sin that separates us from God by our good efforts, we can never do that. All of our good deeds are like filthy rags. But there's also something much deeper here. And I think you need to know the difference between moralism and the gospel. We talk about this a lot around here, but, but moralism, think about moralism here for a minute, for religious, being religion. Uh, being very religious, it, it means moralism is, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Think about this. So, so if I get my act together, I work on myself, and then I present my righteousness to God, then I will have, he will accept me. I will receive his blessing. So think about that for a minute. Are you really serving God or, you, or are you serving yourself? You're actually serving yourself. I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's self-centered obedience motivated by fear and or pride. Fear, if I don't obey him, I'm not going to get his blessing. Pride, hey, look at how good I'm obeying him. I'm a whole lot better than those people that aren't obeying him. That, that seems to be self-serving. You're, you're actually not serving God. You're serving yourself. You're actually using God. God's a means to an end. So when you do good things, your morality is not for goodness sake or for their sake, for people's sake, or for God's sake or for God's glory. It's actually for your sake. What happens if over time you don't get what you think you should get back from God where you're not going to do those moral things anymore? You're not going to be good. 
See, see, it's based on self-centeredness. So that's what he means. No one does good. See, no one seeks God for God. Everybody might seek God, but they seek God as a means to an end. That's self-centered serving of God. That's why he says no one, no one does good, no, not even one. In, in, in fact, if you're serving God to get from God, when it no longer pays to do good things, you'll stop serving him, you'll stop doing good things. I don't know how many times I've seen people defect from the faith. And they're serving God as long as everything's going good. And then everything goes south, they start hitting a time of suffering. I've seen people defect from the faith. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. Were you serving God to get from God or to be with God, to have God? Did you know that having God in your life is so much better than anything you'll ever get from God? Yeah, he can change your circumstances. He can give you a lot of great things, but nothing as great as having him in your life. You've got God. And no matter what you go through, that's better than anything you'll ever receive from him. So we don't serve God to get from God. We serve him because we already have God. In fact, that's, that's the gospel. So moralism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Very self-centered. But here's the gospel. This is beautiful. This is what I love about the gospel. God accepts me and blesses me in Christ Therefore, I obey him. It's not motivated out of fear and pride. It's not, it's not out of a deficit, out of a neediness. No, it's out of an abundance. Oh, my goodness, no one can satisfy you like God. So I'm accepted. I'm blessed in him. Therefore, I'm not motivated to do good deeds out of fear and pride, but out of an overflow of love. Love is the overflow of joy in Christ that gladly meets the needs of others. But what if you don't get anything back from others? It doesn't matter. It's not conditional because your heart is so filled up with God. You're tapped into God. You're receiving from him. He accepts you. He loves you. He's filling your heart up. And then you're able to give out of that overflow. Gospel, God accepts me in Christ, therefore I obey. That's God-centered obedience motivated out of love. So why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on ourselves. Because we're left with this inconsolable human longing and self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. We're self-centered. We could say, we could summarize all sin as basically we're self-centered and it's that radical self-centeredness that's making this world a mess. And, and by the way, it's this self-centeredness that's, that's jacking up our relationships horizontally. That's the next one. So why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on ourselves, but also on our relationships. So, so if I, I'm operating out of self-centeredness, I mean, this is going to create major problems in my relationships. There's this social alienation in death. Listen to what James says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? <laughs> I want to know. That's a, that's a good question. Let me paraphrase it for you, what he says here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's our desire for created things more than the creator. And when those idols are threatened, blocked, or lost, we become inordinately anxious, angry, and depressed, and lash out at anyone who gets in the way of our idols because we can't live without them. Those are those counterfeit gods, those pseudo-saviors. We all have them. Now, conflict is inevitable. You guys agree with that? 
Okay, I guess you don't. Okay, let me work that point. Let me, let me work that hard here. Get two people in a room, you're going to eventually have conflict. You guys agree with that? Okay, thank you very much. I mean, you guys knew that. Those of you that are married, how long did it take for you to have conflict? I mean, you get two people in a, in a room, you're going to eventually have com- conflict. Now, conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. Okay? You don't want to go the combat route. That's where you start. And he's going to describe the combat that's going on in our culture today because of our sin, because of our selfishness and self-centeredness. And so you got psychological alienation going on, and now we got, we're going to have social alienation and problems and death going on here. So conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. Don't run from conflict. Why is that? Because conflict gives you opportunities for greater levels of maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but with others. My wife and I have grown closest to God in one another through conflict, not through combat. That was not good. We've done the combat thing, and it didn't work too good. But when we get back to conflict, we work through that, and this is what he's going to help us with. When we work through the conflict, we are able to get healthy and strong. Now, there's two ingredients, two characteristics that are necessary for healthy relationships. Healthy relationships have these two ingredients. You might want to write this down. You, want to, you, you need to know this. Healthy relationships have a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. So if you want healthy relationship with God and others... There needs to be a mutual back and forth giving and receiving of love and truth. Think about God just for a moment. There should be those moments when you, when you sense his love. He's telling you. You have a sense on your heart. He loves you. You're telling him you love him. And then there should be times he's speaking truth to you that brings both comfort and correction or conviction. And you're sharing your truth, your heart with him, that back and forth. It's healthy. It's got to be balanced. The same thing horizontally. And this is where he's headed with this. Look at verse 13. So verse 13, sin and words. So in verses 13 through 14, Paul is quoting Psalm 5-9. Let me read verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. So, so let's think about relationships here, horizontal, relating to one another. So love without truth is deceptive. He talks about they use their tongues to deceive. So love without truth is deceptive. It's selfish love. So there has to be a balance between love and truth. We get into combat and create problems in our life when there's an imbalance in our love and truth, our mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. So we got to go back and correct that. So love without truth is deceptive. It's, it's selfish love. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Any love that is afraid to confront is, not, is really not love, but rather a kind of emotional hunger a selfish desire to be loved. What's happening is that you are using and exploiting the person to feed your own emptiness. So that's, that's an imbalance. That's unhealthy. 
But you want to speak the truth, but you've got to do it in love. Look at verse 14. Sin and words, no love. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Proverbs 12, 18, it says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I'm just wondering here by show of hands, how many can remember in the past someone said something to you, and even to this day, it comes up into your memory and it kind of still kind of stings a little bit. Show of hands, show of hands, yeah. Reckless words pierce like a sword. I can remember all the way back to my grade school days. I had a teacher that said something to me that was just, boo, it cut me right to the heart as a kid. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So when we, when we speak the truth, you can do it in a reckless way where it just cuts a person apart or it can bring healing to them is what it's saying. It tells us uh, in Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. So think about that. The words you speak can bring life or death. It's okay to speak the truth, but do it so it brings life, not death. This is what he's saying. So, love without truth is deceptive, it's selfish love, but truth without love is is too harsh, it's too dogmatic. It gives us information, but in a way that can be very offensive. So, So, you're trying to speak the truth to someone, and so you always connect before you confront, but when you confront, they recoil, they're defensive, you gotta go back to connect, you gotta reestablish that love, keep working that. And it might be something that you've said to them that has hurt them and that needs to be healed up so that you can continue on. Or it could not have, it might not have anything to do with you. It could be something in their past, but you'll never be able to figure that out if you just kind of ram it down their throat and try to tell them, well, you just need to hear this regardless. No, 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 you need to go back to the love part. No, that's a step because love creates a sense of security so you can hear those hard words. Gives you a good solid foundation. This is what he's talking about here. The problem is he's saying we don't do that. We're fallen and we're self-centered and we tend to have no truth and no love. You see, without truth, we, we don't know how to love. And without love, we don't know when to confront them for their good and the health of the relationship. And so true love forgives the most, true love forgives the most, but enables the least. So we need to hold each other accountable. We need to speak the truth, but we need to do it in love. It is never loving to let someone sin against you or others. And so we speak the truth in love, but when we don't speak the truth in love and there's an imbalance between love and truth, look at verses 15 through 17. This is what happens. Sin and deeds, we fight, we've got combat. And in verses 15 through 17, Paul is quoting Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace... They have not known. The way of peace, they have not known. So as believers, the way of peace, we should know. Christians should be the most loving, forgiving, repenting, reconciling people on the planet because of the resources we have through Jesus Christ, because that's what He offers us. He offers us all of that, and that's the way of peace. Now, I'm sure you've heard this before, relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. How do you make your relationships healthier? By you getting whole. (laughs) Work on you. Focus on you. You get healthy. You get strong. Individual wholeness is about finding your completeness, your wholeness, your holiness, your happiness in Christ. 
It's turning back to God and letting him fill us up with everything that we need in him. So we're not operating out of a deficit, out of a self-centeredness, trying to fill the emptiness inside. And, and so that's, that's, what he's, that's what we need to understand from this text. Relationships don't put us in conflict with people as much as they put us in conflict with our own sinful nature. It reveals what's going on inside our hearts. Here's a quote that I've used for years. I've um, modified it a bit. Uh, but it's, it goes like this. If I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own in Christ Jesus, then all of my relationships will become an effort to complete myself. All I can offer the relationships is self-centeredness, emptiness. But I've got to find my completeness and wholeness and happiness in Christ. And then out of that abundance, then I can... I can be a facilitator of healing in that relationship. I can speak the truth in love. I can work through those conflict issues. In those conflict issues, I can grow in my, my maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but with others. That's what God has for us. But he's just saying, hey, we don't do that. We're fallen. When we've turned away from God, we can't pull that off. That's why we've got the mess on our hands. And so why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on ourselves on our relationships with others, and now we get to the root of the problem. It goes back to God. We need to get back to God on our relationship with God, spiritual alienation. So think about this. It starts with this spiritual alienation. We turn away from God, creates a psychological alienation, an emptiness, a self-centeredness inside of me, and all I have to offer socially is social alienation. That's why it's, it's, a, it's that rippling effect in our lives, in our relationships, and this is based on verses 18 through 20. So why does everyone need the gospel? Because of the effects of sin on our relationship with God. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. God's hand is not too short to save and his ear too dull to hear, but it's your sins that separate you from God. Do you hear what he's saying? The breakdown in our relationship with God is not on God's side of the equation. Did you know that? It's on our side. Let me read it again. God's hand is not too short to save. Hey, hey, he wants to save us. He's reaching out to us. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. It's blood bought. Jesus died in our place for our sins. We've been reconciled to God. It's not on his side of the equation. It's on our side. We doubt his goodness. We turn away from him. We think we can do this on our own. That's insanity. Look at the mess we've got in this world today. God's hand is not too short to save his ear, too dull to hear, but it's your sins that separate you from God. In fact, verse 18, this is our condition. No one fears God. And here Paul is quoting Psalm 36.1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is both the cause and the cure. Now, let, let me define fear of God for you. It's not, it is not being afraid of God. It's not being afraid of God. Here's what it is. The fear of God is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who God is and what he's done for you, that it ruins you for anything else. 
When you begin to fear God, you will fear nothing or no one else. Because that's how big he is. That's how great he is. When you understand that God is for you, not against you. When you begin to live in the reality of that, that will make you unshakable, unoffendable, and unstoppable in life. Let's go on. Verse 19. There is universal accountability to God. He's just talking about our spiritual condition. So no one fears God. And there's universal accountability to God. Now, we know what that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there will be no blame shifting or excuse making before the throne of God. We'll all stand before God and give an account of our lives. Everyone will be held responsible for their own sin and rebellion against God. No one gets away with anything is what he's saying. Verse 20a we're almost finished. There is universal condemnation from God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For by no works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So let me ask you a question. Okay, you guys still with me? Okay, here we go. Here's the question. If you were to ask the average American, are you going to heaven when you die? What would they say? Yes, yes. They would say absolutely yes. And then if you were to respond with another question by saying, on what basis are you going to heaven? And they would respond by saying, because I am basically a good person. Ah. That's not what the Bible says. Did you hear what he said? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There is universal condemnation from God is what he's saying here. There's no amount of works that can ever achieve a right standing with God. When someone says that, I know they haven't read the Bible. I spend just a few moments in the Bible and I have conviction. I realize how far I fall short. I look at that and I go, oh man, I don't even come close to that level of love, Lord. And it doesn't condemn me, it convicts me and draws me closer to Him. And I appreciate His grace all the more doesn't beat me up. He doesn't beat me up. He just says, hey, see this? This is, this is what I have for you. It's much better than where you, where you are currently. There's so much more potential because I put my Holy Spirit in you. I got so much more for you. So it, it convicts. God doesn't condemn us as believers in Christ. All that condemnation was placed on Jesus, but he convicts us. So I can always tell when people aren't reading the Bible because it, it, it'll certainly bring conviction. But boy, it draws your heart. It, it helps you to see your, your great need for God. We all stand guilty and condemned to perish and no amount of good works on our part can save us. See, here's the difference between religion and the gospel once again. Religion, every religious system, you, you do the research. This is what separates Christianity from every every other belief system. Every other belief system gives you a list of things that you can do to achieve right standing with God. In the Bible, we just read it here, you can't do it. But for some reason, because religion is man-made. That's why I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I know that Christianity isn't man-made because man wouldn't come up with this thing, wouldn't come up with with Christianity. Man comes up with, with a with some kind of a merit system, a list of do's, things we need to do. And if you hit the list, the good are in, the bad are out. Every belief system out there does that. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Scientology, Christian Science, Islam, all of them, they all have their list. And you hit their list, you're in. 
You don't, you're gone. The good are in, the bad are out. What about Christianity? What, how, do we, how do we get in? How do we enter into a relationship with Christ? How does that work for us? Is it the good are in, the bad are out? No, that's religion. So, so what is it? What do, you, what do we need? What do we need? All we need is what? Need. All we need is need. It's because the humble are in, the proud are out. All we need is need. All we need to do is recognize, I can't do it. When you come to an end of yourself, you come to the beginning of God. When you realize, wow, I read the Bible. I don't even come close to this. There's no way that I could ever earn a right standing with God. Whoa, you got it. That's right. Yes, God is that holy and we're that sinful. That's what he's saying here. We're a mess. We're under the penalty and the power of sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We need a heart transformation, and only the gospel could give us that. That's what he's saying. And when you humble yourself before a holy God, yes, you enter into a whole new life. That's what he offers us. But you got to come to an end of yourself. All you need is need, and there's a lot of people that don't have that because of pride. The more you realize how little you deserve and how much you have received, the more you will experience indescribable and indestructible joy in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 20b. The law cannot save us, but only show us our sin. So all those belief systems that say, oh, just live by this law, live by this truth, live by this or whatever, they're wrong. They're going to take those people straight to hell is what they're going to do. That sounds harsh. Well, that's the truth of the Bible and what God's Word is saying. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The more you see your dire condition without Christ and the magnitude of God's provision through the cross of Christ, the more you'll experience life-changing joy. So let me end with a story here. You can see the last point in your notes. Our relationship with God is like an unfaithful marriage that God heals at great cost. I'm going to give you a quick story. It's out of the book of Hosea, Old Testament book. How many are familiar with the book of Hosea in the Old Testament? Fascinating book. I'm just going to share just a quick story from the first three chapters. Psalm 134, it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. How do we fear God? When you understand who He is and what He's done for you, believe me, you're going to have a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who He is and what He's done for you. You're going to be overwhelmed with that. That's how you cultivate that fear. Look at Him. See what He's done for you. This story is going to help us do that. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. Hosea marries her, she's almost immediately, she almost immediately becomes sexually unfaithful to him. She bears three children, the last of whom isn't even his, who he names Lo-Ami, which means not mine. Finally, her unfaithfulness gets worse and worse, and from one man to another, and eventually she leaves Hosea and the kids for a lover who neglects and abuses her. This is a fascinating part of the story. Hosea feels bad for her, tries to bring her back because she's being abused and neglected. Tries to bring her back, but she doesn't respond. So Hosea provides for her the basic necessities to keep her alive, and she doesn't even know it. Finally, her her last lover sells her into slavery. And Hosea 
being a prophet of God, turns to God and says, okay, uh, God, uh, remind me why you asked me to marry her? And God says, so you will know something about my relationship to you and what it's like to be me. Hosea, I want you to go where she is being sold and purchase her freedom and take her back. Then you'll understand my love for you and my people. She was stripped naked so the bidders could see what they were getting. It's not hard to imagine that she had her eyes closed to shield herself from her moment of her greatest degradation. The bidding starts... And suddenly she begins to realize that one of the voices was her husband, Hosea. She's thinking, what is he doing after all I've done to him? And her husband says, 15 shekels in a homer of barley, sold. It was the average price of a slave. He walks up to her, and instead of berating her, he takes his cloak off and covers her nakedness and says, now you will come home and be my wife. Wow, I love that story. That is a beautiful story. That's a gospel story. If the gospel isn't the most amazing story you've ever heard, you haven't heard it. It's right there. That's what Christ has done for us. In all of our sinfulness, in our depravity, he covers us with his righteousness and loves us and brings us into his family. It's unbelievable. And I'll tell you, as we continue on in the book of Romans, it's going to get better because we're going to talk about that grace next week. You can see how it kind of turns. He starts talking about what this grace means and how it applies to our lives. So here it is. I'm not okay. You're not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. That's why everyone needs the gospel. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, what Hosea did is nothing compared to what you have done for us Through Jesus Christ, you entered the marketplace and and he covered our nakedness with his righteousness. And on the cross, he paid the price to buy us away from our enslavements. And to the degree that we take that into our lives by grace through faith in Christ is to the degree it will change us forever. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Hey, next weekend, the greatest gift you'll ever receive, Romans 3, 21 through 31. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. God bless you. Love you guys.